Welcome to Control the Controllables. I'm Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis Academy in Spain, and we've teamed up with Max Tennis Academy in Ireland. We've brought this podcast together to entertain, educate, and energize the tennis community through the different lenses of the sport that we love. From Grand Slam champions to those at grassroots level, from sports journalists to backroom staff, Our aim is truly to get under the bonnet of the tennis world at all levels. So sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to episode 119 of Control the Controllables. Today, we have the French Open preview show. The one that you've all been waiting for a couple of days before French Open 2021 starts. Doesn't it feel as if the 2020 French Open just ended? And all very, all very strange during this pandemic period, where we had a French Open in September, October time, and then here we are a few months later, going again. I'm delighted to say that we have three of our panelists back. We have Anne Kjofferfong, we have Mark Hilton, we have Freddie Nielsen. We were supposed to have five. And unfortunately, Xavier Melis had to cancel for babysitting duties at the very last minute. And Naomi Brody was in Italy. She tried and tried to get onto the call, but unfortunately, the Wi-Fi wasn't quite up to scratch. And these are just some of the realities of, of the world of tennis, playing these tournaments. We try and plan to the best of our ability but they've promised they're going to jump onto the review show in a couple of weeks at the end of the tournament. And we have three very, very capable panellists who give their thoughts, share their stories, and as I'm sure you are all waiting for, they make their predictions. They are a little bit predictable. And Mr. Nielsen, hot news off the press, one of his picks has already lost in the qualifying. So he's already 1-0 down. Uh, but I'm going to now pass you over to our panellists at the French Open preview. So our French Open panel, welcome back, guys, to control the controllables. We've got Freddie, we've got Hiltz, and we've got Annie Kay. How are we all doing? Annie, how's things? Very well, thank you. How's everyone else? Yeah, very good, thanks. Very well, thank you very much. And guys, I want to start actually. Clay court season has has been going now. It feels for quite a few weeks. Um, we're starting to get a pretty good feel on who's in form, who's not in form. To you first, Dan, and someone obviously special to to us and at the Soto Tennis Academy, Iga Schwantek, who certainly seems to be almost the favourite going into the French Open after the last couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, can you believe it? After her result at the weekend, beating Pliskova, love and love. For me, she'll be going into the French Open, obviously full of confidence, but as a serious contender this time round. So I'm fascinated to see how she deals with the, the pressure, the expectations. And yeah, it's great to see someone who, who hasn't been that one hit wonder. She's really got substance and she's backed up that French Open victory from last year. Um, and she's an exciting prospect. And in terms of, you know, and I saw it firsthand three weeks ago at the academy, she was definitely nervous, you know, and she was openly talking about how, you know, going in as the current champion, going into the clay court season definitely was a different feeling to what she'd had previous. 
is it different going, do you think, to the French Open that it is going into the 1000 events? I believe so. I mean, winning a, a WTA 1000 event is a, a huge effort. Um, but going into Grand Slam and winning a Grand Slam um, is different gravy. I mean, everyone wants a slam. And, you know, there, there is more attention, I think, on, on players, you know, whether it's all the media they have to do in the build-up, um, you know, they're on the bigger stage, hopefully playing in front of bigger crowds as well. So, uh, yeah, expectations will be high. If I could just join, join in with a comment to that, I think the difference is, for example, if you see a, a player like Barty, I think there's zero chance she pulls out a French Open, but she's more comfortable pulling out of a Masters tournament in order to be ready for French Open. And I think that shows where the priorities lies with the, with the top players. And I think also uh, the other one who seems to be very hot right now in all of the, certainly the 1,000, WTA 1,000 events is Sabalenka who's actually never made it past the round of 16 in a Grand Slam. So I think we're, we are talking about a different kettle of fish, but I think we have to say those three names that we've mentioned so far are, are certainly going to be the hot talking points going into it, I think, Hilt. I think that's right. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if Sabalenka can transfer that into, into the French. I mean, she's obviously been on a great run in the Masters series, and I don't know how serious Barty's injury was. I know she pulled out last week, but whether she's protecting herself going to the French, but she's always going to be there or thereabouts. Um, and he obviously is going to go in there with a lot of confidence and, and belief from getting over the line in September. So it'd be, it'd be intriguing. And don't you think as well, Anne, on the, on the clay, well, again, when we're talking about those players, we, I guess for years we've heard they play like typical women. You know, typical women, they just they just smack the ball. That's all they do. There's no thought process. But I think especially now, looking at Schwantek, looking at Barty's, and obviously there's plenty more, they seem to be bringing a completely different outlook to, to, to how they're, they're going about their game. Yeah, I mean, these are not the names you mentioned. I mean, Barty, Schwantek, just to, to name a couple, they're not one-dimensional tennis players. These players um, are all court players. They've got variety. They've got spin. They can deliver with power, um, good ball speed. Um, and, you know, they're, they're master tacticians out there as well. And, and Sabalenka as well, who I think everyone likes to refer to as a big ball striker. But tactically, she's way smarter, way more patient um, and um, has a dangerous game. So I do think the trend has changed in women's tennis. Um, you know, yes, you're, you're still going to get your big ball strikers who who will go after it um, and just crunch, you know, see ball, hit ball. But there are a lot of other players out there who have shown they can be effective by playing with variety and, and having complete games. And, and Hiltz, to bring you in on this as well. I guess going into more of a, almost like a player development thing. So uh, we'll we'll jump into the men's side in a minute. But if if we're talking about those names and those that are having success on the clear courts, two big names that don't seem to be uh, Serena Williams, who again lost today, I, I believe, and, and Naomi Osaka, you know, how different the game is on clay. You know, is that something that if we talk about 
British tennis, if we talk about, again, bringing you in, Freddie, Danish tennis, you know, countries that don't play all year round on the clay courts. Is that why the game style, I know there was jokes on our WhatsApp group, what is topspin? You know, is that is is that something that you see as a coach is a, is a big development tool? Yes. Um, you know, ha- having worked with, with two players most recently, one who was very comfortable on the clay and, and one who, who wasn't so comfortable, I think there's benefits to both. I mean, as, as a coach, you have to look at, at the strengths of your player. And sometimes I think we fall into the, into the trap of trying to alter and change game styles due to the surface. And I think someone who doesn't play necessarily a classic clay court game can still be unbelievably effective on the clay just from having maybe a different sort of variation, different different court position, different ball speed, different flights. And I think it's actually, you can look at it in two ways, can't you? You can look at that as being a big problem, but you can also look at it as being something which a lot of these guys aren't, aren't familiar with, you know, they're not comfortable with. And I think in the, in, in the past, we've kind of talked about, I know in British tennis, you know, developing clay court games and, and spending a lot of time on the clay and not been probably given enough attention to the fact of what, how that can, the, the game style that you have can transfer onto a clay court. Yep. Um, I think we're seeing that from someone like from you know from Dan Evans for example you know this year probably having his most successful year on the clay he's taking him a long time to understand how effective he can be and trusting in that and feeling comfortable on it and I think that it's the same for these other players you know Ash Barty is, is very a very similar theme where she, you know her variation and her skills have been very transferable from a faster court onto, onto a slower court as well One of my favourite quotes and it was it was actually a Spanish coach who was quoting Esteban Carril, and the best assistant coach there is out there is a clay court. You know, it's teaching you so much. So I guess Freddie, if I go back and you know, I know you do some coaching. I know you're you're a, still very much a player, but you're also dabbling in the coaching world and not just coaching on the tour, but also you know spending time with juniors. You know, do you see that that the, that the clay court itself is is teaching you skills that you're going to need for the rigors of the tour later on? I think it's quite important to important to be careful with words like need and this. I think it can be, and it can be incredibly efficient. I also think there is room for everything. I don't think it's a necessity, but I do think it's a great tool, and for some people, it can certainly help. Uh, it's it's, it's slow down. Uh, the pace and you can you can have more time to work on your technique and this and you got to build up uh, a point in a, in a different way but at the same time these days it's a little different than it was 20 years ago or 30 years ago when I started playing tennis where an indoor court was absolutely lightning I feel these days that the hard courts and the indoor courts are still really slow yep. so so I don't think it's as big a deal I think it's yeah, universally speaking, it can be. But if you're if you're a smart person or you're a, you're a smart coach or whatever, you you can make do with what you need to to do on all sorts of surfaces. And yes, if you look at it all all around, it it certainly has it appears to be some sort of benefit from being a clay quarter uh, in in growing up and developing your game. Seeing that most of the guys who've the, dominated the world of tennis in the last few years came from uh, clay court. But at the same time, I do feel that most of the tournaments in the world are on hard court. I mean, most of the big tournaments, we have a clay court swing now leading up to French Open. But then we have a lot of uh, big tournaments on hard court. So it, it kind of, 
I don't know. I I don't want a university to say yes. You definitely need it. No. But I do yeah. believe that yes, it can have a very big purpose. And if you had to choose one over the other, sure, I would probably pick clay as part of development. But I do think that there's room and space for every kind of development, and that you can you can manage to to adapt when you grow up. And if you're a smart uh, trainer or you you have a quick uh, bright mind, I think. Um... One of the biggest things you see, don't you, when you're when you're changing from a from a say a hard court onto clay and players who haven't grown up on the clay, one of the biggest things that feels totally uncomfortable is the movement. So you know, all these players can hit the ball, and it's 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 a physical thing. I feel a lot of the time, especially when you see players who haven't grown up on it. It's a, it's it's a it's a real skill in itself, and that's where the coach and the team around the player needs to be really educated in the in the movement on the clay to make sure that they're they're most comfortable and can transition as quickly as possible if they're spending a long time away from a play court yeah andy andy murray was quoted as saying uh, and I, I think this was fairly recently that he said this that the difference between him and a novak djokovic andy really struggles to slide on his left leg so, so when Andy plays wide on his backhand, he actually has to slide on his right and almost pivot, you know, to play that wide backhand. Whereas Novak and, and, and all these guys that have been brought up on a clay court, I know Andy did from 15, but missing out on it before the age of 15, the Novaks of the world are getting strong in behind with that left leg. And he believes that that 0.03% or whatever it might have been to be able to hit with quality and body behind the ball in that area was one of the areas. So I think I think that's a, it's a great point you make on the movement hilts because... My second example is Paul Anacone on the podcast. One of the things I wanted to ask him was Tim Henman made semifinals of the French Open and, and Anacone was coaching. And I said, look, how? <laughs> How's that happen? You know, that we all thought Tim Henman's British. He loves to volley. He can't hit with top spin. He can't do this. And he said exactly what you said, Hiltz, that it was about learning what skills he could use on the court. You know, and he's a great mover. He has a great ability to use variation. You know, we've seen last week in Rome, uh, we've seen Riley Opelka, who I guess isn't a traditional clay court player. We've seen Dan Evans making semifinals in Monte Carlo doing a similar thing. And and to bring you in on that hilt, it's obviously someone who spent so many years with, with Dan Evans. How was that watching? Is that something that you visualise could happen with him on a clay court? Absolutely. Um, it, it was it was almost making him yeah. believe how effective he could be. And, you know, there's probably been a bit of scar tissue over the years where he's been growing up and not felt comfortable on it. You know, years where he's almost avoided the clay, years where he's tapped out on the clay. But there's definitely been a shift in his mentality, without a doubt. And that, I remember a couple of years ago, actually, when he was just coming back, he had a really good run on the grass, didn't he, in 2019. And he, he credited it to, not that he played a, a ton of matches on the clay, but his attitude towards the clay shifted and it was a case of, no, I can spend the time developing. I can use my skills. I'll then get onto the grass court season and be feeling great and feeling, you know, things come easier. And, you know, he's getting some rewards this year without a doubt. And, um, and I think he sort of, he sees it more of a challenge now, you know, he's challenged by, by the surface. He enjoys playing on it. He's always played, he always played well on it as a junior, just as he came into seniors, he, he struggled with it a little bit, but he's, as you see, he's making semi-finals of Monte Carlo. I think he's played like 
10, 11 matches on the clay this, this, this season and probably more than he's ever played. You know, see some of the wins he's had. It shows how effective he can be. And Anne, in terms of men's tennis, the big three, you know, they're all getting a little bit old. Well, maybe Roger is. Unfortunately, he lost in Geneva today. But it, it also does feel like we're starting to think, we're seeing, you know, Zverev winning, we're seeing Pass winning these big events, and then almost Rafa's closed that down in Rome a little bit as well. How impressed, and this, this to, not to jump ahead too far, but this could be, I'm, I'm still umming and ahhing whether this is my pick, but Mr. Pass seems to have really made a move the last few weeks. Yes, he, he was outstanding in Rome, um, not so in Madrid. Um, but Berrettini's the other one who um, I was very impressed with watching him play in Madrid. Is this, I mean, those is other this younger or... ones that you've already named. Um, are you talking about Berrettini? <laughs> Berrettini. I yeah. know. Oh, I, I rate Sissipas higher there. Do you? <laughs> Sorry. The, view, the listeners <laughs> have just gone really <laughs> going off on a different tangent here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, both are very capable. Both are. I mean, come come French Open, it, it's hard to really bet against Rafael Nadal, given his performance in Rome as well. You'd like to think um, come Roland Garros, the guy's going to peak and it'll be, what is it, number 14 he's going for? That'll, that'll be giving away the quiz later, Anne. I can't, I can't answer that question. <laughs> okay. Well, okay. I, I think I've got that right. Anyway, <laughs> but anyway, uh, it's it's still hard, despite how well these younger guys are playing and um, the results they've had in recent months. It's still hard to see anyone on that Philip Chatrier court getting past Rafael Nadal. I agree. I agree. But it, it, it's going to happen at some point. It's going to happen at some point, and we're going to. I don't think this year. I don't think it will happen either. I just think it will happen when reti- when Rafa retires. Nobody's going to get past him. So how many does he win, Freddie? I don't even want to think about it. It's already now, in my opinion, probably the most impressive record in all of sports. Yeah, it's, it's a big statement, but it's hard, to, it's hard to go against that statement. That's for sure. Give me any other argument for anything else. Like what the swimmers at the Olympics or whatnot. I, I think it doesn't come close to this. It's, it sounds silly. 13? Right, Anne? <laughs> <laughs> I think I heard the other day that his win percentage on the clay was in the 90%, 92, 93%. I think he'd played 500 matches, won 400 <laughs> and, and you know, four, something ridiculous. And it's an incredible record, isn't it? I mean, the thought of, of him losing it at the French Open this year, okay, it can happen, but this, you know, the smart bet is with him, isn't it? I mean... I think he's only lost two matches in five sets in all of his life on clay. Is that right? I think so, yeah. And who were those people? Söderling, Djokovic. I mean, oh. he retired one time at French Open, so those are the three times he didn't win, as I remember. I might have one off, but I'm pretty sure he lost one to Djoko, lost one to Söderling, and then he retired one year, and those are the only times in the last 16 years he has won. And then he won all his matches in Davis Cup as well, in best of five sets. He won all the Master Series finals back then when they were five sets as well. Uh, he had some epic ones against Korea and Rome or Raja and Rome and all this. And as I remember, he won them all. I think he's only lost two five-set matches in his life. Do, do you know the other thing that's amazing on that? Because it is probably the most, like you say, dominant, amazing achievement in, in, in sport. He's lost 
I think it's 44 or 45% of points that he's ever played at the French Open, which, which, yeah. I, which I also think just, I guess, for juniors, for juniors listening, listening, you know, I'm big on this. And I think it's, I think it's really important that people understand the sport that they're playing, you know? So when you've got a junior who's bouncing their racket because they've lost a point, you know, it's like arguably the greatest ever male player. Well, definitely the greatest ever male player on a clay court, but arguably the greatest ever male player in the most dominant tournament has also lost 45, 45% of points he's ever played, you know, and that's, it gives that kind of perspective on our sport as well. Definitely. I want to, I want to move into doubles a, li a little bit. I don't want us, you know, to, I understand we could end up being here for hours and hours, but certainly Freddie, you're still on the, on the tour playing right now. You know, you yeah, thanks to the, thanks to the frozen Corona ranking, not due to my results. That's for sure. Uh, you you know as well as anyone, Freddie, it can all turn around in one good week, you know, and yes. that's that's happened previously with you, I'm sure, on many an occasion. But I, I have to say Mektic and Pavic, you know, I heard at the end of last year when Pavic split up with Suarez and it was like, what are you doing? You guys have just finished the year world number one. Um, but they obviously knew something that we didn't because I'm not sure I've seen a team as dominant as them in, in the men's doubles game, as obviously the Bryans in their peak, but they certainly look like they're one hell of a pair right now. Uh, it's easy to say now, but I actually said when, when I found out that they were playing that I think it was going to be an improvement on the Pavic and Suarez because I see them as the perfect combination. I think they're so good together from play styles. And then they have the X factor that they really get along well. They're from the same country. They're good mates. They really want to do it together. They, uh, they seem to be really, really enjoying playing. And I was expecting them to, to do extremely well from the get-go. That they've been doing this well, I don't think anybody expected. Yeah. But I think they are the perfect combination. Yes, I think they've won uh, six finals this year. I saw, I saw, again, something on them. They've six finals. They've been in total of eight. I mean, they've just dominated, haven't they? They yeah, look incredible. They're winning a lot of super tie breaks, which also talks about that they find a way and they make it happen when it's not going well. And I think everybody who's played doubles consistently knows that it doesn't take much to lose a doubles match these days. Yeah. And they just keep winning all the tight ones. And yeah, they're a really, really good team. They're, I mean, they're unbelievably good matched. Uh, they have you have Pavic, who is the little more flashy one. He's got the the, the lefty serve could go a little bit bigger and, and he can take some more cuts and risks because he knows his partner is so consistent. He rarely makes any nonsense on the court. Okay. He makes you play so many returns. He puts himself in the great positions always. He really, really rarely makes anything stupid. And that kind of allows Pavic to be the little more flamboyant version that he is. And then they, because they play well together, they, they back each other's serve. Pavic has a very good lefty serve with Mektic being absolutely flawless in his positioning at the net. And then you have Mektic at the serving with Pavic is a really good net player and very courageous. So, so they have that freedom to, to, to be exactly the people they want to be together. Their match, their match tiebreak record is 12-1. <laughs> yes, it's Great. unbelievable. Correct me if I'm wrong, but had they teamed up previously before, given that they're both from Croatia? They might have in lower levels, but I don't believe that they have too much at the at the ATP tour level. But I'm not going to put put myself on the line there. 
It's certainly impressive. Before we, we go into, let's be honest, everyone just wants to hear people's picks. Everyone, everyone's listening to this to hear if Freddie knows who's playing the tournament. You know, so we're gonna <laughs> we are so we we are gonna get into that. But Anne, I want to bring you back in because we've we've talked about how it seems to be a bit of a mindset sometimes, this whole clear court thing. You know, I certainly remember when I played not that I was any good at tennis really, but when I went on a clear court, it was just like, Oh, I can't play. What do I do here? You know, it's kind of completely psyched myself out with it. Naomi Osaka, who, you know, we were talking about it on the, on the last podcast before Australia. She looked so dominant in Australia, looked like was going to be that person who grabbed, grabbed the women's game. And then everyone was saying, Oh, but she can't win a match on clay. And seeing her, she kind of looks like she doesn't believe that she can really win many matches on clay. Why, why is that? Why can't she find a way of putting her game on the court? Um, I think a lot of it also, I mean, you discussed it earlier, about the feeling comfortable um, moving on a clay court. She's someone who is clearly um, not comfortable moving on a clay court, doesn't feel as secure on, uh, under her feet like she, she does on a hard court. And so... Therefore, if you're struggling to get behind the ball and, you know, deliver your your best strikes, you're always going to have that doubt in the back of your mind. And unfortunately, I mean, yes, she, she hits a big ball and she has the ability to hit through some of the opposition. But on a clay court, there are too many other women out there who move well enough to, to really outmaneuver her. And, um, you know, clay gives people more time than they would usually have on other surfaces. Um, but, you know, it's not to say in the years to come, it's um, a surface that she can't master. I always think in a women's game, you look at someone like Maria Sharapova as a good example, as someone who described herself, you know, in the early days as what was it like Bambi on ice or something yeah. along those lines. Um, but then she went on to um, lift the the Roland Garros trophy um, twice. True. So. You know, she she mastered it and she she got she improved her movement on clay. So there's no reason why Naomi Osaka can't do something similar in the years to come. And and if I just add to that, also with the movement, I think there's also a little bit of understanding that your court positioning might have to change just a little bit. That if you have a guy who's very no sorry a girl who's very dominant and wants to play close to the baseline, that's not always that possible on a clay court simply because. The, even at the best courts, there's always a little bit of element of bad bouncing. And if you don't hit it completely clean, then you surrender your court position if you're too close to the baseline and then people can maneuver you off the baseline. And then it, 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 there's a few things that might take a little bit of time so, so that, that she probably just needs to get around. And I say, like Anne says, I mean, if, if good players, they'll find a way. And she's on a way to becoming one of the very best consistently i mean she's already won a few slams and there's nothing that says she can't keep going and if she has the right attitude which she seems like she has she'll learn how to play and play no doubt didn't xavier tell us she was going to win as many as serena last time we had a chat (laughs) yeah well well remembered yeah that was a big call from xavier if she if she's playing for, for as long as what you know if she serena's 40 this year yeah. I mean, yeah. if Naomi Osaka is still playing until she's 39, I think that would be a great achievement in itself, never mind getting near to Serena on the slam count. 
Xavier's not here to defend himself, but he will be at the end of the French Open. Will so so he can't say anything against when we say those are absolutely ridiculous statements. What is he thinking? <laughs> <laughs> we will we'll send we'll send him the recording. And Hilts Medvedev seems to be the one on the men's side. Like he's 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 even actively shouting it out in matches. You know, like what am I doing on this court? That's the worst court surface ever. You know, is he going to work it out? Is should shouldn't Medvedev be able to play on a clay court? Has he got similar movement issues? What's what's going on there? Ah, uh, I listen. I I think for sure he can play on the clay. For sure he can move well on the clay. It seems to me, like you just alluded to, is that just his mindset about it at the moment just isn't there. You know, he yeah, he's he's going to struggle. He's going to struggle slightly more than other surfaces, as as Freddie just said about his court positioning. He likes to sometimes play early, but he also you see him standing so far back sometimes on a hard court. You know, and and his retrieval skills, his defensive skills are unreal. What is evident is that he's he's not in the best frame of mind um, over this clay season for whatever reason, and maybe he's suffered a little bit in the past, but. You know, there's no reason for me why he can't play well on the clay, you know, and it'll be interesting. It'll be interesting once he gets to, to Paris, whether things is a shift with him or not. But um, I think if he if he had a slight change in mindset, I think that would address a lot of the of the issues that he maybe he's been facing on the clay courts this season. Didn't, didn't he beat Novak once in Monte Carlo? I, w- I wouldn't be surprised if he did. I mean, it, he's a character, isn't he? And yeah. I think I think that even even when he's been even when he was on that run on the, on the U.S. hardcore swing, it would have been what eighteen months ago, twenty months ago. That I remember then he was pretty verbal in the way he was on the court, and he has it in him, doesn't he? And yeah, he's pretty funny and, with that kind of stuff. Yeah, but then you put him on a surface which maybe he's not comfortable with anyway. That's that's not a good combination. So I think if he if and when he does address that, then I think that you'll see a bit of a change in direction of his results on the clay for sure. He made semi-finals of Monte Carlo in 2019, beating Sitsipas in the last 16, and then Djokovic in the quarterfinals. And then the following week he made final of Barcelona. Five hundred. And that pretty much alludes to Hilt's point, which he said a few times already, that it's all about understanding what what you can do on a different surface. I mean, relative to my level, obviously not comparable to any of these guys, but if I had my day, I could trouble a clay quarter because I had certain skills that they weren't comfortable with. And that doesn't make me any, any more of a clay court player, but all these guys there, they have the same at their relative level. And if they have the right attitude, like Hilt says, and maybe takes the slogan of this podcast into account, then there's no reason why they, uh, why they can't perform at every level and uh, at every surface, sorry. And especially these days, I mean, this, this is not even 30 years ago where we see surfaces being so different that you would actually see players that look like a fish in a tree. You know, the, all the surfaces are pretty similar now in pace and the balls are so slow that it doesn't matter what surface you, you see a tournament from, the tennis being played is pretty much the same style, roughly speaking. I mean, there's not, not comparable to 30 years ago anyway, where you would see a Pete Sampras trying to work his way or Boris Becker on a clay court, and you would see uh, even Lentil skipping French Open to try and to try and prepare for for Wimbledon. Those days are over. It's pretty similar every serve. You also see people not coming in on on the grass anymore. So for sure, for sure, it can happen, and and it has a lot to do with attitude. Yes, it's, some is more difficult than others, but. 
like I said, these guys are all so good that, and they face the same tennis uh, all year round. They they could make it happen with a good attitude. Attitude and movement is what I'm taking from it. You know, I think, you know, ultimately yes. the, the courts, are, it's different underfoot, isn't it? It's different underfoot. So the movement is always going to be a bit different and, and how, how that's approached mentally. And and you guys, having, having you guys on as well, before we go into our picks and starting with you, Anne, I, I did have written down here favourite French Open moments, but maybe it's not... <laughs> necessarily your favorite French Open moment. You know, we can talk about your fantastic career, but the French Open wasn't a place that you are a happy hunting ground for yourself, maybe. Uh, you can say that again. I'm not sure. I have too many favorite moments that involve tennis um, in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> but I can, um, a memorable moment is obviously um, getting... Uh, Drubbed, love and love. The only time I was um, given a double bagel in my career was by Dinara Safina. She was number one in the world at the time. And um, uh, it's, it's kind of funny looking back on it now, but I remember arriving in Paris, having reached the semifinals of a premier event the week before in Poland. So the pre a premier event, WTA premier is the equivalent of what, a WTA 500. So I was feeling quite good about my tennis, except the conditions in Poland were slow, wet and heavy, which, you know, made playing on clay tolerable for me. Yeah. <laughs> and then I got to Paris and it was so bloody hot and lively. And oh, my goodness, is it, it was so much quicker than um, where I'd been playing the week before. <laughs> So um, there I was, drawn against uh, Safina. I thought, oh, great. You know, not a great draw, but, you know, I'll give it a good go. I I'm not playing badly on clay. I, I feel feel all right about my tennis. I walked out there on the court and um, I've never, I played her actually in the semifinals of Junior Wimbledon. Got a few games that time on the grass. But, <laughs> but you know. One game went by, two games went by, three games went by. I thought, oh, crap. Like, this is going to be a hard day at the office. <laughs> and I, I just honestly, I just thought, how on earth am I winning points, never mind winning games? Because I, I've literally, she's a different league to me. I, I've got nothing that can, can hurt her out here. And I'm on my way to the most humiliating defeat of my career. <laughs> And all I could see is my family up in the box and my, my coach. <laughs> and um, I, I guess Hiltz will be familiar with um, the IC. Oh, I guess, you, Freddie, you'll know, there'll be a Danish yeah. IC. Yeah. And um, there's always um, an, a British, Great Britain IC team that come over um, for the first couple of days of the French Open um, and play a match against the French IC. And so you've got all the... <laughs> so many people I'm familiar uh, uh, who I know fairly well in I don't know the, the president's box watching and trying to support me and my best mates there as well so I'm thinking oh my god this is so embarrassing like somebody just kept me off this tennis court <laughs> and, and and her and her being number one in the world probably meant that you at least played on a big court well, we were on Philip Chatteret. Of course, we were on Philip Chatteret. My only experience of Chatteret, playing on Chatteret and thinking that there's nowhere for me to hide on this court. So um, me and Hills have won just as many games on Chatteret as you have. <laughs> <laughs> but I was thinking, 
like I'm literally trying my hardest out here and I've got nothing nothing that's really gonna make any impact um against her whatsoever she she was just like a brick wall and um yeah everything that's, just better but I did have I do remember horrible, Oh my god, I've never experienced anything like it. But I just remember having game points and thinking, sake, just win this point. Come on, Anne. <laughs> get, get a game on a scoreboard. And, and then you're so nervous because you're just thinking, please, please. Um, but it was it was embarrassing. But she I think her first four matches, she barely dropped any games. I think her next match was like one and love or two and love. She was, it was a joke until she got to the final. And I think she lost to Kuznetsova maybe in the final. Can't remember. It's that moment when you're, you you do it, juniors do it, but let's be honest, we all do it. You start following the person in the draw. Of course. And it becomes a, it becomes a a better loss. A better loss. No, the worst thing was, I was actually looking at the number of minutes the other players were on court for in comparison to me. Well, one question. It really is is the worst feeling just to add in, to be almost to get love and love. I almost got double bagel by Heung Chung in Korea once and coming off the match again counting the minutes i felt like i had played four hours because my quads were so tight during the match from almost losing love and love from all the nerves that i was got it and one thing that killed me and was to walk back to the locker room through the the player lounge and everybody knowing what's going on and they're just looking at you oh almost the pity that they show on you oh this guy oh honestly i I did not want to show my face I did not want to show my face to anyone. I just wanted to get on the Eurostar home. <laughs> there's that there's that feeling, isn't it, in, the, in those moments where it's a complete humiliation, but like Freddie, not getting quite done double bagel, you're actually genuinely happy as well because oh, you're having... Thrilled. <laughs> Absolutely thrilled. I was down six love, four love serving, knowing this is my last chance. I have no idea how to go about it, but I know this is my last t- chance for a game and I'm horrified. And luckily he threw four returns in the back fence and I was, thank the maker. <laughs> and my question is, how many points did you win? Was it, was it, more, than, was it more than 13? Yeah, it was way more than 13. So, I mean, it wasn't like a Pliskova love and love. There were okay. some juice games there. <laughs> so, that, so you could empathise with her last week as she lost love and love to Shrontek because she'd won eight points in the first 11 games. Yeah, no, five I know. in the last it was, game. It was, um, I mean, I was, uh, I, I honestly wanted Pliskova to get a game. I was commentating on the match. I was thinking, please, like, just give the girl a game. But, um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't, it, it's happened to many others. Um, and it, it's just one of those things. I mean, I can laugh about it now, but it took me some time to get over. <laughs> and then you're going into the grass court season, knowing that your last result was a love and love the wrong way and you're just thinking oh god please no one ask me about the french open (laughs) boys can you can you better this french open story (laughs) no are are we are we moving on (laughs) i i I think that's what the clay does though doesn't it It, the one thing i think about the clay is that the difference of level and i'm not talking this particular match with Han, but the difference of level can be really quite close but you can you, you can be so far away can't you you know, you yeah. feel like you do everything almost as well as your opponent, but just that little difference makes a huge difference. And before you know it, you're struggling for points and you actually feel like you're in the match. 
I don't know if you guys play squash, but if you play a guy in squash that's just a tiny bit better, it's impossible for me to win a point. And it gets, it gets infuriating. And I can recognize that feeling that you're saying absolutely. Especially when you're like me and you can't pop a serve more than 130 kilometers an hour, then you really have a long way to win a point. <laughs> so it's the time, guys. It's, it's the time for, for your picks. So we're, we're going to start on the women's side. And we're going to start with Freddie Nielsen. I have Barty to win. Definitely. She's looking very good. She's looking dialed in. She made a, she seemed pretty uh, at ease with herself when she pulled out of uh, Rome to get ready for French Open. I think she's played the best tennis. So she's my, uh, she's my standout favorite this year. How good is she mentally as well? It's unbelievable. It seems like, it seems like that break she took really just turned things around for her. And she's, she's got to that level which yeah top player requires and when she won the French Open it was a top performance in the final played really well gave her opponent absolutely zero chance and she doesn't look like she's phased uh, she does well in Australia at home where there's a lot of attention she's a big deal back there and it's not easy to just perform and she does really well so yeah mentally very good very mature great player has great uh, like uh Hiltz also mentioned very good variety in a game and uses it really well. And it seems like Clay is her favorite surface. It's also a little bit tougher for the big hitters to outpower her on Clay. And she can maneuver the ball well. And her results have been so good that, yeah, she's my pick. Anne. Um, well, Ash Barty as well is my pick. Despite Sriantec's um, performances last week, she did beat Sriantec actually in Madrid. But I just think she looks so sure of herself. Um, I'm not going to read too much into her um, retiring in Rome. I think that was precautionary. Um, you know, she just looks um, in control and um, comfortable out there. I'm not sure she'll ever say clay is her favorite surface. I think, you know, another week on clay is a week closer to getting on grass. But I think she, you know, the expectations in terms of the pressure, she's away from Australia, I think she can go a little bit more under the radar in Paris than she would do even in London um, at Wimbledon. And yeah, she, she's been a consistent performer over the last um, few months. So it's, um, it's hard really to bet against her. Hiltz, my man, is this, is, are we going for the yeah. clean sweep? I, we're going clean sweep. I, yeah, I've, got, I've got bad news for you because I think we're going to be the same on the male side, aren't we? But um, <laughs> I, I would say I would say Barty as well for every reason which these two have just explained, and I and I genuinely just love watching her play. So she's my pick. Well, my pick is Fontek. Uh, what a surprise! Yeah, but I, I do. I I think if you look at last year's French Open, it is ridiculous the score lines. It's ridiculous. It, she, she, it was like two, two and one, one and one, three and one, four and one, two and love. And I think the final was maybe a, a three and love or three and one as well. She's just won Rome, love and love in the final. Mm -hmm. She's clearly, she's clearly loves clay courts. She, she clearly is head and shoulders above lots and lots of the girls out there. I think, I, I, I think if she avoids Barty, early, you know, and the, I know the way the seeding could go. They could come across each other in the last 16. I, I I, would love to see, 
I would love to see them in different halves of the draw because outside of Sabalenka, I'm not sure that anybody else beats Barty or Svantec. And I think it would be an incredible final. I watched the match in Madrid. The match in Madrid, I, I don't think Iga played fantastically well, but she still found herself in a position where Barty had to play really good, mentally tough tennis at the end of the second set and served incredibly well. Um, and also, hey, I don't want to go along with you three. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I can't, you know, I, I'd love to. Different. I'd love to see. <laughs> I'd love to see a Barty Shvantec final. The one thing I will say now that you mentioned the last French Open, not saying that Shvantec can't play this time around, but there's going to be a huge difference in the conditions compared to last year. I mean, it was so cold. It was so wet. The balls didn't go at all, and the conditions now in spring in Paris are most likely going to be completely different. So it's also going to be interesting to see if that has an effect on the players. Uh, obviously, like we just said, good players can play in every conditions, and I'm sure that Svantec will adapt, but they were significantly different last year being played late in, in autumn. So there is a yeah. little bit of a... But also, question. and Barty wasn't even in the draw last year because she chose to skip it. So um, exactly. I, I just think for Svantec, I just think the expectations are going to be crazy, especially after her recent result in Rome. And I'm just fascinated, really, to see how she deals with it all. As a, being yeah, the, going in as a defending champion is one thing, but then going in uh, having just won Rome uh, and beaten your opponent, love and love, it's um, yeah. Another it seems level. like uh, it seems like there's a curse for the big you know, WTA players in Rome. Didn't Kenan uh, lose love and love last year in Rome as well? Sophia Kenan. You keep putting us on the spot here, Freddie. I'm just trying to mentally prepare for this quiz, just keeping sharp. <laughs> so, <laughs> might be. She lost love and love somewhere. You're right. I can't remember where. Freddie, you're I, right, Freddie. I've known Freddie for a long time. There's no way that Freddie is wrong on this. <laughs> like, there's there like, is a way. He he knows he knows exactly what happened. His his mind is incredible. I she lost love and love to Azarenka. Yeah. There you yeah. Go in the first round and then went on to make the final a couple of weeks later in Paris. So That's a good uh, omen for Pliskova. Yeah, what a, <laughs> what a funny sport. On the men's side. And on a, on a, I have a little quick story about that though, one time. Just real quick. There was a, back in the days a, a very famous tennis player called Bobby Riggs and he uh, he played the, the grass side tournament and he uh, back then nobody had won Queens and Wimbledon. So he made the finals of Queens. And then because he didn't want to jinx it, he, he tanked the final of Queens, love, love, and love, went to the bookies, went, I want to bet uh, all my money on Bobby Riggs winning Wimbledon. They wouldn't take the bet. Then he said, okay, I'm going to bet all my money on Bobby Riggs winning singles and doubles. Wouldn't take it. He said, all right, I'm betting all my money, singles, doubles, and mixed. They took it. He did it. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. It's not a bad thing to lose love, love. Love that wouldn't be allowed nowadays with the, with the way that the tennis world is. And um, men's side, okay, Rafa, 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 or you want to give us, you want to give us more, Rafa, Rafa, Rafa. Why? What's your reason for that? I don't get it. I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I think he's uh, he's in good shape. I think he just won some tournament last week and. I know it was a it was a pitiful number of tournaments he's won at that tournament. I think it was only ten times he won Rome. So, so I think he'll be really happy to get into double digits there, and that will spur him on to win French Open number forty five. 
anything to be said about the great man himself that hasn't already been said no i think he he's the one everyone wants to see he's the one um who delivers year after year it's um it's hard to see anything different this year yeah and i I think we spoke about it earlier the longer the match goes the bigger favorite he becomes and getting through rafa in three sets is a huge ordeal getting through him in five is next to impossible as it's been so far well i'm convinced that the the next male player to break through to be a, the real real deal is sitsi pass i i i've seen enough of him now uh, and maybe not at grand slams yet but i really do believe he's got the game to go through these guys i think it's it's incredible what he does off the forehand side the way he injects pace from absolutely nowhere it feels as if he's serving a little bit better I think he's got the variation whereas like a Rublev or somebody like that for him to kind of batter the door down for for five sets I think is difficult against your Djokovic's and the Dals whereas I actually think City Pass has enough variation and part of his game that he can so I can't be jumping on that Rafa fence with you guys I have to it's like it's it's risk or reward you know, if my if the, if the risk of this pick comes off, the reward is big. People might actually think I know what I'm talking about. When Rafa duffs up everyone, then everyone will just forget that I said City Pass, but my pick is City Pass. And moving... Well, I, I'll back you a little bit and say I do think that he is the next big thing, because for the reason you said, but also because his attitude is spot on. Yep. He never gives a bad performance. He's on it. You can see the look in his eyes, the way he practices, the way he trains. He's he's absolutely on it. But with regards to the variety, I think that's actually what holds him back right now. I think for him to take the next step, I think he has to streamline his style a little bit more and be yeah. a little bit committed to certain things. For example, I think he had to finally had a match point against Rafa in Barcelona and he had a short forehand. And I think that's the kind of shots where he he needs to commit more to a certain style and and take advantage of those points and, and finish them quicker. And instead he, he rolled it back and rallied with Rafa, lost the point, lost the match. And I think at that level where he's at now, a few points here and there, you mentioned it earlier, it's only 55% of points Rafa wins. So it's only a few points here and there he needs to change in order to make a big difference. But I think he needs to streamline that uh, identity on the court and take take some quicker points away from opponents in order to really be competitive for for slam titles is that variety that he's tried to do that or is that just is that just balls what do you mean so you're talking about match point against Rafa. he's got a forehand that he should step in i would imagine he's probably just got a bit tight there and and not taking that on rather than thinking right i'm gonna try and you know roll this and in, in because i want to play with variety yeah, but I've seen it several times, in my opinion, just a few yeah. points here and there, even early end sets. And I wish I've spoken to some of the other guys about watching it, that that I see certain moments where he had a chance for a short forehand and then instead of trying to clean it off or come in earlier, he, he starts a rally and that gets him a long way because he's better at rallying than most of the guys. Yeah, And he will, will eventually win a lot of tournaments and matches as he does right now. I mean, we're talking about one of the best players in the world. But in order to get to that next level or beat Rafa and Novak, who are so, I mean, in tune with what they're doing and the construction of points, yeah, 
in order to beat them, I think he needs to do that. However, once they come, start falling off, I think he's right there in line to, to, to be the best guy. I remember you saying, Hilt, you and Evo saying, I think Evo played him in Dubai maybe last year. And I remember after that match speaking to both of you guys and it was like, this guy's, this guy's proper, this guy's real. He's had a couple of hidings from me, like on the clay um, as well, last year in, was in Munich or Hamburg and then, uh, and then again this year, but um, at Monte Carlo. But, and and I, I genuinely felt it was Evo's best chance in Dubai when he's playing on a, on a pretty slick hard court, which would suit Evo well, going with a lot of form. He just bullies, like he, he's so strong out the forehand corner. He can cope with variety. He moves unbelievably well. He can come forwards. He is the one probably who, as you suggest, is gonna is gonna be there or thereabouts anyway this year. And then you take away those those top boys. He's he's probably the standout, isn't he? Yeah, he's an incredible player, and he's only going one way. But it is a little bit like Hill says. Sorry, just my last point on him. When like what Hill says, it can be difficult sometimes when you have a guy who can do everything. And that's kind of my point about streamlining his style a little bit because, like Hilt says, he can do everything on every court, on every surface. And sometimes it can be difficult to surrender to maybe giving up on some qualities in order to improve some others because he, he can do anything uh, and out rally against uh, rally against everybody. But I just feel that it's a decision if he wants to to win the slams now. It's a good. It's a good discussion. It's a one I'd like to. We could probably have a podcast in its own around identity and you know all of those things with with City Pass. So so now the the one that we were absolutely naff at last time. I don't think one <laughs> of I don't think one of our outside picks made it past the first round. Um. So over to you, Anne. Who who are our watchers? Well, apart from people picking gra- previous Grand Slam champions. So. Who who are your genuine watchers that maybe people listening haven't really heard of that aren't on primetime television on a Saturday Sunday you know but a wants to watch out for on the on the women's side? Okay, so someone who who is not a Grand Slam champion basically that's for Freddie's benefit. So you, that's <laughs> not 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 Sabalenka either who's winning. I'm not Sabalenka. Okay. <laughs> um. Veronica Kudamatova, okay, recent winner in um, first time WTA winner in Charleston. I mean, she she's a dark horse. She can potentially cause them some upsets. Do I think she could win French Open? No, but I think she's just a, a name to keep an eye on. Um, everyone knows about, but performed better in Rome last week. How many names can I throw out there? You've had your lot too. Is that it? Yeah, that's that's it. It's 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 a dark horse. It's not dark horses. <laughs> okay. Okay. And Jessica Pagula. I'm just gonna throw that one out there as well. Freddie. This is a big moment for you. This is a big moment for you. You got a lot of stick last time for, for picking someone that didn't even play the event. So come on. But I could pick her again this time. Is she gonna play? <laughs> I am most certainly uh, certain that she will, but I really, really like her game and I want her to do well. So I'm going to say McNally again because I think she's a bowler and I'm, I think she has something else that a lot of girls, uh, that, that makes her stand out from other girls. And I really like watching her play. And just to go in the spirit of Van and mention another one. I... She just lost first round this week, by the way. Well, 
Are we picking picks for this week or French Open? Cannon lost love and love last year, first round. Yeah. Well, I'm no, just I saying Harriet Harriet Dart, British player. Harriet Dart had a win over her a couple of weeks ago as well. Just saying. I'm just, wait, I'm just waiting for that breakthrough, you know. A little, but she of, is a good player. Yes, I agree. She's um, <laughs> but I will mention, uh, I don't think Clay is her best surface and I don't expect her to do a good result, but I'm just pumped that we have a player from Denmark, Clark Towson. Uh, a young girl breaking through, who's broken through to the top 100. She beat Jennifer Brady last year in French Open, and I think she's interesting to watch. She, is, she yeah. has a great game, big, big, big power of serve and forehand and, and baseline game, and obviously she's becoming a, a big name in Denmark. So so she's one I'll be looking out for, that's for sure. Hiltz? Well, Annie mentioned her. I thought I was going to say Pagula as well. I mean, she's been on a, she won some matches in Rome, hasn't she? She won a couple of matches, I think, in Madrid. It's very much an outside bet. <laughs> but I could see her potentially going pretty well into the second week. So that would be my dark horse on the women's side. I'm staying Spanish. Paula Badosa is a one that it feels as if we saw a lot of her in Australian Open for the wrong reasons. You know, she, I think she was part of the quarantine group that, that, that was on that flight. And then one day before she was about to get out of quarantine, she got told that she had coronavirus somehow. So she had to quarantine. <laughs> she had to quarantine for another 14 days. So she kind of seemed to come to the attention dur- during that time. But she started to put some wins together. Spain and Claire go together, don't they? I think she's a, a one to watch in the tournament and, 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 on, and on the men's side hilts. And I guess what, what, we're, what I'm looking for with this, I think we all know that your top five, six, seven, eight guys, you know, that, that are in and around it, but maybe some of the names that, that those at home haven't listened out for before don't, don't see. And maybe someone who's going to make third round, fourth round and, and make a little bit of a dart forward. Um, anybody that jumps to mind. Well, there's a couple of those Italians that have done really well recently. It's hard to ignore, you know, Senego obviously last week. And then, you know, there's obviously Massetti coming up. Um, I think he wouldn't be a bad shout to have a little run. I mean, and then you've got Alcaraz, who's obviously been someone who's going to be touted, especially on the clay in the years to come. You know, they're, they're sort of picks who, who may find they get their first big runs at slams this year, especially on the clay. You know, I, it's... I, Hilt, I went to the Marbella, the, the Marbella ATP event, and so, I mean, I've seen Alcaraz quite a bit at the futures futures level, but the ATP and Barbera, watching him play like up close, it's unbelievable how hard he's hitting the tennis ball. I mean, at times you can see Ferrero pulling his like hair out. You know, yeah. it's like coaching Freddie Nielsen. You know, like come on, man, just just take it down a notch every now and then. But you know, he's maybe he, he overplays. He overplays. But the ability that he has, and and there's very very strong talk that he's someone that is to look out for as as a future Grand Slam champion as well. Yeah, and, and maybe over five sets for him at the moment might not quite happen, not because of necessarily the physical side, but but that that element that you said, like he he, he struggles to sort of like you know tame himself and tough to keep that going over five sets over X amount of time. But yeah, he's definitely going to be one to look at, isn't he? Absolutely. Anne? Um, okay, it's going to be a bit left field. Kasper Rood. Yep. I really enjoyed watching him play um, that week in Madrid. And he just seems like a really nice guy. 
<laughs> great tennis player yeah. but I, I don't know he came across very well and it, he wasn't someone I necessarily paid too much interest in uh, following men's tennis but I, I was impressed he had a re- good win o- over Sissipas that week in Madrid although Sissipas was rather off but he's I was impressed top, he with is his top attitude. 20 he's top 20 no I know I know but it, he's not someone you know most tennis fans would necessarily think of as we'll someone call him a light potentially horse. We'll call him a, a light horse. horse. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he, he was fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, he's, he, absolutely. And, and Freddie. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a difficult one. I mean, if, if, if Kasper Ruud's a light horse, then what's Yannick Sinner? Uh, I, I have to say, I didn't expect him to have as good a year, uh, a year as he's had at the start of the season. And he's really impressed me. I keep thinking Karatsev is going to lose, but he just keeps winning. Which is also pretty impressive. And uh, if I'm going to pull someone completely out of left field, Del Bonis has played unbelievably well this year on clay. Unbelievable. So, yeah, I, w- I wouldn't mind. I mean, he's a bit of a veteran now. And there's all these talk of all the young guys that, that Hills have mentioned. And there's obviously some of the youngsters. Uh, we're just waiting for that breakthrough in Sina, Felix, Chapo. Uh, who else is there? But but I, I I think he's looking really really strong and he's winning a lot of matches. Yeah, why not make him go make a, a third or four, fourth round carry that momentum? I think he's one of the guys. If he's not the most winning guy on play this year, he's definitely up there amongst the winningest because he played all those tournaments in South America to start the year. Uh, so so maybe him or I think also to mention a few. I think it's also just a matter of time before Christian Garin makes a big run at a big tournament. I thought we were just sticking to one name. Yeah, I know Hilt's mentioned about five, but on the women's <laughs> side, I was I was told one. Yeah, <laughs> I don't remember. But I find, uh, but uh, I, I thought that uh, you did really well, so I was thinking, oh, maybe that's good. Well, between between Hilt's and Freddie, we have the draw covered. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> We've got we've got them covered, but the one uh, that if I, I have to, if I have to pick one, I'll pick Karin. So I'm I'm going to sacrifice my picks and be uh, to have a quick discussion on Felix because I I actually saw a couple of discussions on this on Twitter over the last few weeks, and you know Felix has been touted as as the next big thing, you know, for for quite a while now. What's your opinion that maybe Felix isn't kicking on as we all thought that he would. Now, I know he's still ranked very high. He's obviously very high profile. Tony Nadal's now in his corner. But it seems to me that he hasn't kicked on to that level that we thought he might have so far, Hiltz. And I'm being harsh, yeah. but I want yeah. to stay harsh. Yeah, it, it, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because we all see how he can play and, and, and some of his one-off performances are, you know, are phenomenal, really, aren't they? He's 20 years old. He's, I think he's still 20, maybe. Um and we're, we're kind of waiting, aren't we, for him to, to have that big moment, you know, a, a big a big tournament. Um, you know, he's obviously fallen a little short on some finals. There's been a bit of talk about that. Um, I, I still believe he'll come, won't he? I, I just think that sometimes things take a little longer. I think he's obviously, like Freddie touched upon earlier in the podcast, finding his identity a little bit as well. You know, he, he's he's now going through that process of working with Tony Nadal. He's 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 someone who's 
obviously committed and, and has got a fantastic attitude. And I do think it will come for him. He's 20 years old. You know, he's got plenty of time. The only thing I would be concerned about, not concerned about, but in the back of my mind is that the longer he goes without making that breakthrough, the longer he goes without winning, maybe getting over the line in some of these tournaments, how cigar tissue can come um, and how that might affect him. But he's got a great head on his shoulders. So I don't even see that being a huge thing for him. He, he will come. It's just a question of when. My concern, Hilds, though, is we're saying that, but second serve hasn't developed, in my opinion. You know, there's certain aspects of his game that haven't seemed to have, have kicked on. And we're talking about during a pandemic period where there's been a fair bit of time to, to develop that. And again, to, if I talk about Schwantek on the, on, on, the, on the women's side, it's very clear to see that a player like that of a similar age who who is very clearly working on on developing aspects of a game that then are coming through on the match court and 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 I guess my concern over over a Felix and I guess who am I to talk about a top twenty player in the world is is that are those areas developing that need to develop ready? I think yes and no. With regards to the second serve, I think he had some problems double faulting that he doesn't seem to have the same way now. So obviously, if you're if you have if you're dealing with double faults and that kind of stuff, it's tough to really kick off before you get that under control. I think there's an element of having so much desire and willpower that at a certain point you you have to stop up and think, okay, it, it's not enough to just have desire and willpower because the level is so good that you gotta take a breather and figure out. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how to explain the best way or say it that doesn't sound derogatory, but being a little more intelligent on the court, not just having desire and work ethic and good attitude and good approach and doing all the right things at a certain level, you need a little bit more quality in tennis. And I think that's what comes down to, because I, I still, when I see him play, I still see a little bit of point construction, uh, shot selection, knowing when to pull the trigger in certain situations. And 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 sometimes it feels like he's not considering too much who's playing on the other side of the net yep. uh, or what's required to to hit certain shots. And and I think that's a that's an important factor he's going into now because willpower, uh, attitude, uh, like you said, good head on his shoulder, really easy to read for, root for, superb guy, respect for the process, respect for the coaches, but. Uh, now I think he's he's got all that, and now he's competing against the best guys in the world, and he needs to be yeah, streamlined a little bit, like Hilt said about identity, knowing when to pull what shots and and construct a point, and using his his qualities a little bit better because uh, yeah, I think he's uh, I think we spoke about it before the Australian Open. He he can have fantastic results, and then the next week he can uh, he he can lose early to a player he in quotation marks, shouldn't be losing to. And that lack of consistency in with a top, tev, top 20 level comes down to understanding your own game and, and, and shot selection and, and how to build a point, in my opinion. He's, he's unpredictable, isn't he, sometimes? We've, we've seen that. And I think you've hit the nail on the head there with with him adapting a little bit better. He's come unstuck against a few players who have shown a bit of variation. And he's, and like you said, he's someone who looks very much on his side of the net, isn't he? He, mm. he focuses on what he can do, maybe not necessarily how he can influence what's happening down the other end, maybe a bit smarter. So that feel for the game, which maybe he lacks at the moment. I mean, he still made last 16 of the Australian Open this year. He's now 
he's not I, he, he's made I don't know how many finals he's made is it five maybe I think um, seven. Oh, is it okay but I, I think that 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 ability to first of all look up and and see maybe adapt himself a fraction to what's happening down the other end is going to be a big thing for him rather than just relying on his amazing weapons that he does seriously possess isn't he? he has some he has a huge game yeah but not not easy to to keep uh executing that against some of these top guys who will look down the other end and find ways to to break his rhythm And and to add to what you said, Dan, it is very harsh, and he's a it victim of his own. It's he's a victim of his own success because he's been on the on the radar for tennis uh, Feinschmecker since he got his first ATP points at what seven years old or whatever it was. You know, he got him when he was 15 or something. So everybody's been expecting all this stuff from him. And if you just take the blueprint of who he is, if you say player X is this age and has achieved this, you would say it's unbelievable. It's ridiculous. Just like Chapo, yeah. the same. He's only one year older. And these guys, if you just see the stats without knowing where they come from and see there's a player who's age 20 and has done this and this and this, it's unreal. But these guys are a little bit victim of their own success and hype because they were that good that early. Yeah, and they're measured against being almost put up as being the next greats of the game. You know, so it's it's what it's what's been measured against, isn't it? You know, and I think I think that it's just a, it's a, it's an interesting one. It's a one I'd love to talk more on, but we are going to have to move into the real reason we're here, and that's the quiz. Anne is our reigning champion, very clearly, by the way. She smashed it off the park. Remember the rules. Give me the thumbs up. You can give me a physical thumb up, or you can give me a Zoom thumb up. Whatever I see first. Any arguing with the referee, I hold the power to put you on mute. Yeah. <laughs> For the next question. <laughs> First question. And it's the closest answer wins. How many kilograms of crushed red bricks are used every year to create the Roland Garros courts? How many kilograms? Oh my goodness. This is one of them where it can be really embarrassing. <laughs> put it, put it, I don't even know where to start with Put that. it in the chat. I don't want any kind of jumping. For one court? For all of the courts. To create all of the courts at Roland Garros. Okay, so we've got Mark Hilton with a whopping 1,000 <laughs> kilograms. We've got 1,000 kilograms, Mark Hilton, 40,000 kilograms, Freddie Nielsen, and 90,000 kilograms to Anne. Freddie's but 40, not 40,000, yeah? What? No, 40,000. 40,000. Okay. In Denmark, we have the dots and commas the other way around. Yeah, I'll use that the, as an excuse. Just to be clear, this is amazing. The answer is 44,000 kilos. What a horrible no. guess. Gosh, darn it. There's, no, Freddie must have known that. There's some Google going on there. I reckon there's going to be On to the next question. How many years has Roland Garros tournament been going for? Is this a trick question since uh, it was named Roland Garros? Or? It's not a trick question. No. I'm not a trying Everyone's to catch Everyone's go Googling. They're Googling. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> He just Googled. Hiltz has just Googled. What, what are you talking 
talking about? <laughs> you'll know by my answer that you'll know by my answer that having Googled. Uh, anybody, anybody wanna wanna take a stab in the dark? Roland Garros. It's actually in the nineteenth century. It's, it's well, it's a it's a big year this year. They're actually celebrating this year because it's the something year. Hundred and twenty fifth. Well done, Freddie. You Googled well. He's good. What is it? Who's got that? It's the 125th year this year. Wow. I mean, I should go the down and play the lottery reason. right now. Huh? Just pull, <laughs> pull out some numbers. Fingers on the buzzers. Fingers on Google right can now. I, can yeah. I guess? I say 13 will be 14. <laughs> Which female has the most French Open titles? And how many have they won? Freddie? Chris Evert, eight. Chris Evert is correct. Eight is not correct. Okay. I was going to say Chris Evert. So that would have been correct. <laughs> you got, yes, Chris Evert. Six. Over to you, Hiltz. Seven. One point to Mark Hilton. <laughs> oh! <laughs> so, so, so we've got, we got three points for Freddie. We got one for Anne. And we got one for Hiltz. Which male has won the most French Open titles? Rafa Nadal. And how many? 13. Thumbs up. 13. <laughs> <laughs> Can 13. I just say, did I not give that answer earlier in the podcast? Yeah, that's just I said timing was for It was hinted at, yes. It was definitely hinted at. Um, who's the current number one in the WTA race? Anne. Ashbarty. Ash Barty, point to Anne. Who's the current number Come one? Come on, boys. Who's the current number one in the ATP race? Mark Hilton. Novak Djokovic. No. Stefano Tsitsipas. Stefanos Tsitsipas. E. Oh. It does get confusing with the corona rankings and the race rankings and all that. In what year did Roland Garros become the French Open? What year did it become an open event? It's a brutal quiz, this one, isn't it? <laughs> Freddie's on it. <laughs> Freddie's on it. Freddie? 1969. That is so close, but it's not right. 68. Point to Anne. <laughs> <laughs> and last question. And a very important, a very important question in our sport. In what year was equal prize money announced at the French Open? Was it 07 or 08? Are you asking me or are you telling me? And she's not really committing to the thumb either. She's faking the head scratch as well. <laughs> can, we see, can, we, can, we, can we have a thumb? So, Anne. Uh, okay, I'm going to go with it. I'm not using Google. Mm, 07. Correct. Well Am done. I? Oh. Boom. Well done. Correct. <laughs> so that I make as one point to Mark Hilton, <laughs> three points to Anne, and our winner of the French Open quiz bonanza, Freddie Nielsen. Well yes. Done. Yes. And I won something this year. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> well done, guys. As as always, uh, a massive pleasure talking to talking to you all um 
yeah, good luck the next few weeks. Freddie, get get stuck in. Hilts, good luck out in, in America. And Anne will look forward to hearing your, your voice over the next few weeks as well. So thank you for your time, guys. And we'll catch up soon. Thanks for having us. Thanks, guys. I have to say... They really are some of my favourite shows to record, you know, speaking to, to good friends in, in the game of tennis and, and just getting their wealth of knowledge and insights into the game. You know, I mean, Freddie will be competing at the French Open, Anne will be commentating at the French Open and Mark Hilton was very fresh from working with Dan Evans, has obviously been around those events for so many years and uh, as well as having a laugh, I hope you guys take lots of knowledge away from those conversations. And here we are, a couple of days away from the French Open starting, maybe even 24 hours by the time this goes out. And everyone's talking about it. The big three in the same half of the draw on the men's side caught my attention on the women's side, we've got Schwantek potentially playing Mugalrufa in the last 16. Two people that are, have become close to myself and Soto Tennis over the last few week, weeks with eager training at the, at the Soto Tennis Academy in preparation for the clay courts. And then we have then been sending players and coaches to prepare Garbin Mugarutha as well. So that certainly caught my eye. But my last thing to say on it... As ever, I've done the thing that annoys me a bit about journalists on Twitter when they put up that here's the predicted quarterfinals. We know that tennis is not played on paper. It's played on the tennis court. And this tennis court happens to be a tennis court that's slippy, it's slidey, it's uneven on foot. And some people are certainly going to struggle on that. I always expect to see some surprises at the French Open. And let's just see if my picks can pull it off. The draw has been favourable to Stefano Tsitsipas. Let's see if it is the time for him to step forward and take it to that next level. Let's see. But until next time, I'm Dan Keenan and we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>